This episode of the Plain Crazy Dan Under podcast is respectfully dedicated to Mr. Bill White, late of Diamond Bluff, Arkansas. A teacher, a flying instructor, a mentor, and above all else, a friend. A true gentleman in every sense of the word, Bill lost his fight recently with cancer and will be sadly missed. Mr. Bill White, long may you rest in peace. Hey folks and welcome to episode number five of Playing Crazy Down Under, the podcast looking at the world of aviation from an Australia Pacific point of view. I'm Steve Fisher and I'm back from my whirlwind tour of the United States and with me as usual is my co-host Grant. How are you mate? Hey, not bad buddy. How are you doing? Well, I'm uh, still slightly jet lagged and not sure what time zone I'm in, but uh, let's make a go of this week and uh, see if we can make up for the weeks I lost. Well, while you've been jetting around on your whirlwind tour, I've been whirlwinding around melbourne yeah <laughs> sounds like you've been whirlwinding around the countryside from what i can see <laughs> <laughs> gotta have fun mate gotta have fun our first story this week uh is a rather tragic one but it's certainly the biggest story that uh in the aviation world uh, certainly in this country and around this region this week and that concerns the uh, tragic crash of a uh, twin otter aircraft up there in papua new guinea with the loss of all on board uh, i think uh, 13 people have uh, lost their lives in that crash uh, it's an ongoing story and uh, we've got a number of articles that uh, cover it so we'll skim over a few and um, see what we can make of it so far even though it's early days and we certainly wouldn't want to uh, prejudge any investigation but um, it's yeah. uh, certainly a tragic story yeah no indeed uh, what's interesting about this one is uh, this is a twin otter uh, that's gone down in Papua New Guinea. Uh, just last week, the week before, we had a Mapati twin otter missing in Papua, which is just around the corner. The Mapati Airlines is part of Indonesia, so while they were flying in Papua, they were part of Indonesia, whereas this one is from Papua New Guinea, which is a, technically a different country. Yeah, so Papua New Guinea, it's it's certainly a, it's, it's a treacherous place to fly, a hazardous place to fly, mainly because it's um, extremely mountainous countryside for the most part, and the weather is extremely changeable, uh, extremely, or can change at the drop of a hat, and uh, can become rather nasty. Uh, it looks as though that may have been a factor in, in, this, in this crash. Um, oh, definitely, definitely they were, uh, it, it's not uncommon for the aircraft to fly into the area and orbit uh, in the clouds in a known, what they believe to be a known good area while they wait to see if they can get in and then they'll try the approach. There's no ILSs, it's, uh, you're flying around in clouds, you're let out of the clouds and suddenly there's jungle just below you and you've got to do a few twisty, turny, harsh banks and then slam it onto a small strip. Yeah, now this aircraft uh, departed Port Moresby at 10.50am uh, uh, local time and uh, was heading up to take a, a group of trekkers up to the uh, famous or infamous Kokoda Track. Now, that's a very popular uh, trekking adventure with Australian tourists these days. Oh, it's, with the Kokoda Track Trail, it's, uh, it has special, uh, special memories and interest for Australians. Uh, a lot of Australian and New Zealand troops fought against the Japanese invasion uh, using the Kokoda Track to transport equipment and uh, weapons, munitions, and also uh, they carried out the fight against the Japanese there, trying to prevent them from coming further south. So a lot of Japanese go and do it sort of 
in a similar way to Australians and New Zealanders going to Gallipoli for the Anzac ceremonies. Yeah, so uh, that's that's what was happening here. The aircraft left Port Moresby, made a short stop en route at a, at a village along the way. And uh, from what we can tell here, uh, the uh, pilot, uh, she's gone to make the approach into the local airstrip there at the start of the Kokoda track, decided that the uh, conditions weren't suitable, or presumably the weather conditions weren't presumable, and hence gone for the missed approach. And after that, uh, she, she has reported into uh, air traffic control that uh, she was uh, attempting to make a climb out, and that was the last that uh, anyone heard of them, unfortunately. So um, uh, it also says here that uh, there, there was reportedly no signs of distress in her voice. She obviously didn't think she was in any trouble. One wonders whether uh, it was probably a controlled flight into terrain. Yeah, it sounds like it. Uh, look, one of the things that's coming up in the papers over here is they're making a big thing. They're trying to say the pilot only had six months' experience. What What is true is that uh, the lady flying, she had just converted across to the Twin Otter and when she joined Airlines of Papua New Guinea, Airlines PNG, she converted to their Twin Otter six months ago back in February, but she had five years' experience previously flying singles including a lot of flying around Papua New Guinea. Um, so she was very accustomed to the area and, and the weather conditions. Uh, it's not like... The, the, there's almost an undertone with the newspapers that they're trying to make out that, that uh, she was a, an ab initio student straight into twins, like who is this person with only six months' experience? And, and they're just... Uh, it, it rubs me the wrong way when they do that because they're not getting the whole picture. Yeah, certainly, and we won't know anything uh, for sure until um, uh, air safety investigators have been up there. Now, uh, the Royal Australian Air Force uh, and the Royal Australian Navy have dispatched aircraft and personnel uh, to the crash site, and uh, they're trekking in there now, uh, even as we record this, to um, try and recover some uh, some bodies, unfortunately, and um, to gather whatever evidence they can find. Yep. Uh, Sorry, I was going to say apparently three bodies have been recovered so far, but uh, they haven't been able to get them out. The natives uh, living in the area have gone in and uh, cleared a, a helipad, but they're not able to get the helicopters in because the weather's so bad. I believe also that the Australian Transport Safety Bureau uh, is sending um, investigators up there to help out with uh, or, or to assist the uh, personnel from the uh, local Civil Aviation Authority up there, uh, Australia, as is usually the case for uh, Papua New Guinea um, uh, in, in situations such as this, uh, uh, usually uh, personnel from Australia are quite often dispatched up there to help uh, the locals out with these sorts of situations. So. Uh, Yep. Probably be uh, quite some time before we we find out exactly what's happened there. If if they can find out at all, um, I'm pretty sure that sort of aircraft wouldn't be carrying any sort of uh, flight data recorder. <laughs> no, I don't think so. Uh, out of interest, a friend of mine was due to be going to uh, Papua New Guinea on Friday. He was scheduled to travel on Friday, and uh, he was in training to walk the track. He'd been he'd spent the last three months in strenuous physical exercise and training and long long distance walking and so on and yeah when this accident happened uh, within a day he had the call saying it's all on hold uh, so they've actually stopped the stopped the flights and the and the trek is going into Kokoda for the moment until they sort all this out yeah interesting too when uh, when we heard this uh, news come in the uh, the heart did skip a few beats because uh, we we've had some friends of ours that have just been up there oh, wow. and, and done the trek and uh, I wasn't sure having been away myself whether they um, had come back but uh, fortunately um, yeah they, they came back about a week earlier so uh, fortunate for them I don't know whether they even flew on the same airline but um, I wouldn't think there'd be too many airlines up that way 
flying. Well, according, according to the reports, there's at least heavy lift fly twin otters into Kokoda as well. Look, the, the big thing in Papua New Guinea, as you're saying, it's very mountainous. The weather changes a lot. Uh, you, you look at the stories of flying in that area during World War II, and they lost a lot of aircraft due to weather. A lot of aircraft were lost, encountering cumulus granitus on their way to or from missions. Yeah, when you're, um, you know, you're a young uh, trainee pilot here, and you, you know, you're looking at a career in aviation. I remember 20 years back when uh, when I first started flying, uh, and you, you're looking at the um, usually rather limited options for building your time once you've got your uh, once you're a newly minted commercial pilot. Uh, some of the options that are given to you uh, include perhaps going out to the outback to do cattle mustering and that sort of uh, uh, agricultural work. Uh, some of the other, a lot of others go down the uh, route of getting their instructor rating and uh, building time that way. But one of the other options that's quite often presented to young pilots is uh, to consider go, heading up to Papua New Guinea and building their hours up there. And uh, I don't know whether this young lady, whether that's what she was doing, but uh, I know when that, that option was presented to me, I, um, I, I sort of balked at the idea of doing that because it is uh, inherently dangerous. And um, uh, this is not the uh, the first uh, local pilot that has lost, a, lost their life flying in and around these uh, rather remote regions of uh, Papua New Guinea. It's um, a pretty dangerous place to fly at the best of times. Yeah, it, it is. The terrain's out to get you. The weather's out to get you. Um, it's, it's bush flying at its best. Yep, and uh, sad to note too that uh, being a firefighter myself, that uh, two of the people who've lost their lives are uh, fellow firefighters. Um, one from two, the... I knew of one, a young guy. Yeah, the young guy is a uh, professional firefighter, um, his name was uh, Matthew Leonard, uh, 28, from Victoria, a uh, firefighter from the Metropolitan Fire Brigade here in Melbourne. The other gentleman, uh, Max Crenwell, was a, a volunteer firefighter with the Country Fire Authority. So, uh, oh, okay. I missed that bit. That will uh, uh, certainly touch home with uh, some of my colleagues, I'm sure. Oh, indeed. One other thing with the, the lady who was flying, um, she went to New Zealand on a scholarship and learned to fly over there as part of her university uh, degree. So she, I, I believe she's a local from Papua New Guinea over to New Zealand to learn to fly back to Papua New Guinea and flying there. So yeah, she should have had quite a bit of experience in the uh, in the local environment because she was um, she was flying with uh, Mission Aviation Friendship. Yeah, okay. And uh, yeah, I know I agree. I'd just like to echo those comments that you said before. Uh, you know, the, some of the local uh, newspaper reports here that are somehow questioning her ability uh, because she may not have had too much time in type. You know, the bottom line is she's good enough to get the rating. Yeah. You know, she's, she's got all the relevant qualifications. The fact that she's uh, not been doing it that long um, really isn't that relevant. And like you say, Grant, if she's already been flying up there five years, you know, she, she's experienced enough to know... Um, whether or not an error in judgment was made this time, you know whether you know, whether there was a mechanical problem with the aircraft, um, only time will uh, will bear those facts out. So uh, you know, I yeah. I would uh, you know implore with the local media here not to not to prejudge the this pilot. You know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. Oh, I'm sorry. I I I, I, I'm, I can't bite my teeth any longer. You you want the media to be nice? Yeah. You want them to stop and think and not sensationalise? Oh, dude, how are we going to sell newspapers now? <laughs> Maybe they should get into the podcasting game. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, welcome to the new media. We're taking over because we can sensationalise and get away with it. <laughs> Absolutely. So, uh, so yeah, just to uh, finish up there, um, our sincere condolences go to the families of all those people who've lost uh, loved ones in this uh, tragedy. And um, we uh, certainly hope that um, at the very least they can uh, recover the bodies and um, uh, they can have at least a proper uh, sending off for them at the appropriate time. Indeed. Indeed, it's, it's always a tragic and grisly task. So, yeah, condolences to all. 
Next item to look at is a slightly disturbing spate of uh, landing gear incidents at Bankstown in Sydney, Bankstown Airport in Sydney. We've uh, had the report from David Optimal, a friend of ours off Twitter. He flies out of Bankstown and he's reported that there were three aircraft on consecutive days have had landing gear issues at Bankstown. Uh, on the 9th of August, a Duchess had gear collapse on landing. Um, on the 10th, it was a Sea Ray. And on the 11th, a Technum uh, overran the end of the runway and had a collapsed nose gear. Uh, the latter apparently was uh, due to the pilot just landing long and badly. Uh, oops. But otherwise, it hasn't really been reported in the newspaper. Uh, he did. David was able to send us a photo of a, uh, of a clipping from The Torch, a local newspaper in the Bankstown area, that reports about emergency services responding to three separate incidents in three days. It's, well, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's certainly pulling out the extreme versions of my saying that uh, any landing you walk away from is a good one. At least they walked away from it. Yeah, well, they weren't great landings, though, because you couldn't use the aircraft again afterwards. Yeah, yes, rather disposable. Uh, the picture here in the uh, article um, that uh, David sent us shows uh, what I guess is the tech name, uh, yes. or what's left of it. And, um, yeah, it's a, uh, well, the uh, the main gear is there, but the uh, nose gear, well, she's a goner, and so is the prop. And <laughs> yep. Not a good look. Not a good look. No, I'll tr- I'll try and get a um, I'll try and download and clip that and put it up in the show notes for those who have a look at it. Yeah, just an interesting one. Uh, Bankstown Airport is a um, uh, the GA airport up there in Sydney, and um, uh, I guess like most GA airports around the place, is pretty heavily involved in uh, student pilot training. Yeah, that's a, that's a pretty uh, that's a pretty heavy uh, that's a pretty high um, crash rate though for uh, three and three days. Yeah, and one being a duchess is not your average GFPT. That aside from the last incident that was being claimed to be pilot error, the other two. Uh, we're not, I'm not sure exactly what caused them at this stage. We'll have to look for the accident reports. But uh, to have your gear collapse on landing and so on, it, it makes you wonder what's going on in there. <laughs> is this a maintenance issue as aircraft start getting older? But a Sea Ray is not that old. No, in fact, uh, to be honest with you, mate, that's not even an aircraft that I'm uh, all that familiar with. The Sea Ray is a, um, it's a light, light sport aircraft uh, amphibian. Well, there you go, mate. They say you learn something new every day. I've at least learned that much. <laughs> there you go, mate. The the pilot flying the uh, third aircraft that went in is apparently a GFPT level pilot on a solo. Uh, for those who don't know, GFPT is General Flying Proficiency Test. That's uh, used to be called a restricted private pilot's license. It gives you the uh, ability to go and fly on your own in the circuit and or in the training area. And I believe also at that point you can, uh, with permission from when you've been checked out by your uh, instructor, you're allowed to fly with the passenger. Okay, our next story here, Grant, uh, is talking about regional airlines in general and it uh, looks like that they're um, a little bit worried of uh, an aircraft uh, equipment shortage or a shortage of aircraft, I guess. Uh, our favourite aviation writer, Steve Creedy. Hey, hey go Steve. Uh, good old Steve. Uh, Gotta be good, his name's Steve. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, he's got an article here uh, in the Australian August 10th and reads, Australia's smaller regional carriers face extinction unless new aircraft can be found to replace ageing aircraft, a senior airline official has warned. The prediction comes from the nation's biggest independent regional carrier, Regional Express, which is otherwise known as Rex, and it comes as the government is preparing to release a white paper on the industry. Rex Managing Director Jim Davis told an industry conference in Sydney 
that regional aviation was already extremely vulnerable, with eight smaller competitors going to the wall in recent years, just in the Rex network alone. Uh, he's quoted as saying, regional air services are undergoing structural change, which I believe is irreversible. We're seeing the whole pattern change, we're seeing smaller operators disappear, we're seeing smaller aircraft disappear, and we're seeing a general contraction of the whole industry in the regions. So, you know, that, that's interesting. Rex Airlines, uh, they fly a fleet uh, primarily of uh, Saab 340 aircraft, many of which are Rex American Eagle aircraft as a matter of fact just having a look here to see how many aircraft they've actually got Grant do you know that? I have absolutely no idea how many they have I just know I see a lot of them when I'm uh, transiting around Sydney and areas like that they're a distinctive paint scheme and sound and look of an aircraft it's pretty cool yeah I know Rex Rex are always facing a uh, pilot shortage Um, it's obviously a natural career progression for any pilot to uh, you know start in the regionals Um, probably the equivalent in the US of flying for the RJ uh, industry yeah, and well, um, they're always uh, losing their pilots to uh, the bigger airlines like Qantas, uh, Virgin, etc. And um, I know they've been taking steps. Uh, they actually took the rather extraordinary step last year of starting their own uh, flight training scheme, their yes. own pilot school up at Mangalore, north of Melbourne. Exactly. And when you graduate from that, you wind up with a huge debt to them, which you have to fly off by flying for them. So not only do they graduate their pilots, they sort of give them golden hat well. I don't even know if it's golden, but they give them handcuffs that keep them flying with them for at least a few years. Yeah, it's six years. I know uh, when they announced that scheme, uh, I was uh, looked at it with great interest myself. Uh, I'd love to do something like that, but the bottom line is uh, it doesn't pay all that well. And uh, like I say, you're indentured to the company for at least six years and um, you've got a huge debt to pay off. Uh, but it's interesting here to see that they also think that the region's uh, short of aircraft. I guess their biggest worry here is that the aircraft mix that they've got is ageing. Yep, um, and of course, uh, buying new aircraft is uh, n- not an inexpensive proposition. So um, you know that that leaves them with the with the quandary of uh, do they do they sell up and, and or do they trade up or do they uh, continue to refurbish the aircraft they've got? Well, you see, that's that's a big issue here in Australia because our uh, depreciation laws are pretty crappy in comparison to other parts of the world, and it's just not financially viable to replace and churn over these aircraft Um, Australia introduced some laws for trucks on the road that they changed the depreciation and uh, made a few other changes because they were saying well these newer trucks uh, use burn less fuel uh, more reliable and uh, safer in general they've got better safety brakes and things like that so they wanted an incentive for people to trade their rigs in and get newer models you haven't seen that we haven't seen that rather with the uh, with the aircraft side of things and quite frankly i'm pretty disgusted with the australian government that they haven't done this there is a big white paper being prepared on the whole aviation uh, australian aviation scene uh, the government's trying to put together a cohesive view on it and a lot of us are hoping that part of that will be an improved depreciation schedule that will make it more financially viable to churn and, ch- and turn over your aircraft. There was an incident here in Melbourne a few years back. Uh, some senior officials of the Australian Workers' Union were in an aircraft coming back to Melbourne after being out in the regional areas of Victoria, and uh, the landing gear wouldn't come down, and in fact the emergency crank broke off in the pilot's hands. So they had to do an emergency landing at uh, Moorabbin. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> yeah, that was... I. I, I care afterwards once everything the dust had settled so to speak in so many ways just to uh, give a few nudges to these senior guys who many of whom are now in labor politics and so on that uh, gee that wouldn't have happened if we could have if it had been economically feasible to trade up to new aircraft so just trying to set trying to pave the way for uh, people to actually think about this when they get into power 
because it's it's totally nuts. You've got old aircraft that really should have been put out to pasture. Yeah, sure, the airframes are fine, things keep working well. Yeah, they do, but your maintenance goes up. It's not, not cheap to replace, as Rex is talking about. They've got about 15 years before their current Saabs uh, need to be dumped. And uh, the, the part where Rex is coming from as well, in addition to the cost of replacing aircraft, is uh, there's nothing out there on the market available now for a 19 to 30 seat aircraft that they can use to replace them with. They, they're not just not seeing it. Australia is uh, pretty unique in, in terms of its, its requirement for an aircraft uh, with that sort of uh, seating capacity. Um, whilst uh, you know most of the um, uh, major population centres in this country are on the uh, you know the, the east and southeast coasts, uh, once you get away from the cities and you get out into the regions, um, you know the, a lot of these uh, a lot of these uh, regional cities are quite remote, um, and uh, whilst they're certainly in need of um, airline services, uh, particularly these days when, um, for instance, a lot of rail services have been cut back to a lot of these regional centres, and, and and the airlines have taken over. There's certainly not a need to be flying in something like a, a 737, <laughs> um, but you know that these smaller aircraft sort of sort of do suit that that market reasonably well, and and, and it sort of it bears out in, in the fact that um, you know you, you've seen Rex uh, enjoying quite a, a good reputation, and not only that, uh, Qantas Link uh, operate a lot of services. Um, I think they predominantly use Dash eights. Uh, yep. a similar sort of seating capacity. Uh, for instance, if you're flying out of Melbourne and heading up to somewhere like Mildura. Um, you know, you're not going to be wanting to send, you know, a 767 up there, but you know, you could you could uh, pretty easily fill it, fill up a Dash 8, and uh, make a reasonable profit out of it. But um, you know, at some point, those aircraft uh, do need to be replaced. The other thing to think about here too is, um, and perhaps one of the reasons it's not such a uh, a big priority for the government is that we don't have uh, much of an aircraft construction industry in this country. Um, so it's um, you know not not a big thing for business here. I, I guess if uh, if they were building aircraft here, um, there'd be a little bit more incentive for the government to uh, stimulate that industry a bit by by making the depreciation rules. Uh, a little better. I've got to say, uh, I know a couple of companies that would beg to differ with you. Uh, Gippsland Aviation comes to mind uh, with their uh, GA8 Airvan that they're actually uh, knocked Cessna on their ass in the US by getting a whole lot of uh, a lot of orders for their Airvans from the um, Civil Air Patrol. Civil Air Patrol, being uh, aside from being the US Air Force's best kept secret, is also the largest fleet of uh, single-engine Cessnas in the world, apparently. And now they've got uh, the GA8 airvan, and Gippsland are about to start rebuilding soon. The uh, Nomad, the old Gaff Nomad, is coming back. They've got the rights to that. No oh dear, the Widowmaker. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'll, there was a lot. There's some interesting things about the old Nomad that uh, some people think it got a bad rap, uh, that it didn't deserve a lot of what happened. But uh, if anyone can re, re, uh, resuscitate the aircraft and uh, rebuild it, it's going to be those guys. You've also got the Whitney Boomerang which is just coming into the, into the market now. And there are a couple other aircraft being built here. You've got uh, the Jabiru crew up, up north. So there is, there, is a, there is an aviation industry, construction industry here. It may not be as big as Cessna, Piper, and a lot of the other big names that you've got out there, but uh, there, is, there is a pretty good industry going on. Uh, yeah, well, that, that being the case, mate, um, was, and, I, and I don't disagree with that, and actually as I made that comment, I was thinking of Gippsland Aeronautics. However, um, you know, they, they certainly are not making aircraft of the size that's required by aircraft by um, airlines such as Rex or um, Qantas Link. I mean, um, you know, maybe the, maybe the government could uh, assist them in some way to develop 
an aircraft like, uh, you know. Honestly, unless... You, those requirements, but I can't see that happening, can no, you? Uh, unless, like, the Nomad, they're buying out and re- and tweaking up and rebuilding, uh, similar to how Viking are re-releasing the Twin Otter line, uh, tweaking it up, because there is a market for the aircraft in the Nomad and Twin Otter size. Uh, obviously, now there's also a market for a th- you know, 20, 30-seat commuter airliner, um, probably turboprop. To replace the SF-340s and so on. But uh, one one thing that you mentioned about how uh, rail services are dropping off and so on, there's a lot of talk within Australia about very fast trains, uh, for instance, to link Canberra and Sydney and Sydney and Melbourne and so on. They're looking at the way Amtrak works in the US around the Philly, New York, Boston, Washington kind of area and how if you're just doing a run from New York to um, Philly or New York to Washington can sometimes be faster and easier to take the train. There's been a lot of talk about uh, fast rail for a lot of years but um, as many people know I work in the rail industry I can tell you mate that will never ever happen. They'll, they'll talk about it and they'll talk about it but um, it, it just won't happen. I'll give you an example and we're talking about Mildura uh, a big regional centre in the uh, northwest of Victoria for instance. Now for many years they did talk about uh, reinstating the passenger rail service up to Mildura from Melbourne, and, uh, and the reason that that will never happen is because you know you could pay a hundred bucks and hop on a hop on a V line train and uh, sit on that for ten hours whilst you uh, slowly wind your way up to Mildura, or you know you can hop on an, uh, a Qantas Link uh, Dash Eight and be there in under an hour yeah, for see, the for the same price. It, it just comes down to simple economics like that. I mean, um, you know, yeah, no, much, much as I'd love to see the, the rail services um, be reinstated and, and particularly fast rail, um, whilst <laughs> You know, I think that is a good idea. Uh, I, I, it, it'll never happen, trust me. Yeah, no, it's it, the only way it can be viable is if it's either cheaper or roughly the same cost and not too much more in time. I mean, where, where it works in the US with Amtrak in that area is when you take the entire trip time in terms of taking off your shoes, standing in line, going through, facing the delays and all that kind of stuff uh, versus sitting in a reasonably good car. The, the upmarket cars on the Amtrak are quite nice and... You've got Wi-Fi and all that kind of stuff. It's it's not at the club cars and everything. It's suddenly it's actually the same time, or if anything, a little bit quicker when you take into account getting there early and going through immigra- uh, sorry through security. But it's going to be interesting to see what comes out with that uh, aviation white paper from the government, uh, whether they make any mention of uh, rebuilding some of these regional air links and so on and uh, putting the priority back into getting people out into the country because they, they want to get more people living in the country. But the only way to do that is to increase the ease of getting to and from places, either by road, rail, or what we would like to see, more aircraft. Absolutely. And uh, gee whiz, Grant, wouldn't it be nice just for once to see uh, an Australian federal government do something even vaguely intelligent when it comes to a white paper on aviation? Oh, hallelujah. We're hanging out. <laughs> we... A bit of stinging political comment there from... <laughs> 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 anyway, mate, you were talking about the uh, the uh, GAF Nomad aircraft, um, which gives us a nice little segue through to our next article uh, because um, uh, one of the uh, previous operators of that aircraft type, I believe, was the Royal Flying Doctor Service. I don't think they operate them these days but um we have an article here excellent segue mate excellent segue i'm impressed yeah see I, all those all those tips i picked up from leo laporte oh. now <laughs> oh go on come on quick 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 insert a quick plug about leo laporte and how you met him let's let's just twist that knife in courtney's back yes oh no i'll, I'll, I'll save that one up for courtney a bit later because uh, that'll ruin my segue otherwise are you listening court hang on there mate you're gonna get to hear it <laughs> 
The Royal Flying Doctor Service says it will be forced to seek increased Commonwealth funding or rattle the tin harder to support remote area services in its southeastern division after the loss of a government air ambulance contract. The yeah, loss we, of, repo- we reported on the loss of that contract a few episodes ago. Well, we reported it on the uh, from the standpoint that uh, private, oper- private operator Pelair picked up the contract. I guess perhaps what we uh, didn't touch on um, was the fact that that was at the expense of the Royal Flying Doctor Service. I didn't actually realise that they were uh, operating that service uh, up until that point. Yeah, neither did I. I was, yeah, that, if I had known at the time, I may not have said, well done, Pelair, and, and made it such a good thing, because it's a shame that the RFDS is losing this one. Yeah, so it says here it's a $70 million contract, and um, comes into effect from mid-2011. Now, uh, that's a hell of a lot of money to lose in a, for the Royal Flying Doctor Service, and it says here also that they're facing a similar battle up there in New South Wales. Yeah. Royal Flying Doctor Service uh, National Chief Executive uh, Nigel Milan uh, says it won't spell the end of the world around medical service. He says, Reports of our early death are somewhat exaggerated. Uh, there, he says there are four operating divisions of the Royal Flying Doctor Service, and the Southeastern Division is the only one that's directly affected here. Uh, the Victorian government caused a flurry of criticism when it announced last month that Pelair, a regional express, uh, oh, subsidi- look, there's Rex again. Good old Rex subsidiary uh, that also has a solid track record in the air ambulance and medevac operations, uh, was the preferred tender for the 10-year air ambulance contract. Wow. Yeah, it says here that the uh, the state opposition, which is to be expected, condemned the move along with the ambulance union, ambulance Victoria has defended it on defended the move on economic grounds uh, it's a little bit sad when uh, stuff like that uh, has to all come down to economics like that um, we certainly would not like to see uh, any aspect of the Royal Flying Doctor Service be put in jeopardy um, yeah no, they've been around for a very long time the, their first flight was uh, 17th of May 1928 in an old de Havilland DH-50 that was hired from uh, the fledgling I love this the, the hired from the fledgling Queensland and Northern Territory Aerial Service which later became Qantas. Qantas, there you go, the giant white rat. <laughs> the flying rat, yes. Yeah. So there you go, folks. Uh, for those of you out there who wanted to know what Qantas stood for, it actually comes from Queensland and Northern Territory Aerial Service. Uh, most Aussie aviation nuts know that, but a lot of people outside of Australia don't know where the rat came from. By the way, the flying rat is just a, it's, it's an Australian term of endearment for uh, the, ca- the flying kangaroo on the tail of the Qantas aircraft. Yeah, uh, talking here about the Royal Flying Doctor Service, you said they've been running um, since 1928. Uh, for those uh, outside this country that um, perhaps not familiar, the Royal Flying Doctor Service, it, it's it's exactly what it says on the badge. They're more than just an air ambulance service. They do a lot of work where they fly out to uh, remote communities in uh, uh, remote and outback Australia, and uh, they do a lot, a lot of work where they'll, they'll sort of fly out to a strip and uh, do a set up medical clinics, you know, looking after uh, locals who are not able to uh, come and you know, get medical attention in the city. I mean, you, you could be talking about people at hundreds and perhaps even thousands of kilometres from the nearest uh, major medical facility. Uh, the RFDS will uh, fly out there. They fly. Uh, they've got a fleet of uh, King Air 200s, and uh, they also fly some um, PC-12s, yeah. Yeah, the sexy new uh, turboprop single. Yeah, so uh, a very, very unique service and uh, a very, very vital service and uh, certainly not one that we would like to see jeopardised in any way. Uh, we certainly hope that, uh, although I'm sure that Pelair will do uh, an outstanding job, uh, we certainly... Uh, would hate to see um, the Royal Flying Doctor Service uh, diminished in any way as a result. Indeed. And uh, I'm, I'm sorry to shoot down your segue, but I think I should get this in before any astute listeners bombard us, um, all three of them. Uh, 
<laughs> with the fact that, uh, as far as I can tell, they've never flown the Nomad. Oh, there you go. Sorry, dude. Uh, you know where I know that one from, Grant? It's from, from the TV show. Where they, they flew it in the TV show. Ah. Don't you remember watching corny 1980s uh, Australian television? They were certainly flying a Nomad there. Uh, I think it was more 70s for me with Skippy. Well, there you go. Shows how much I know. <laughs> no, but I do seem to remember uh, uh, seeing shots of a nomad flying around in some sort of TV show that I wasn't really paying attention to. Yeah. Oh, come on, Grant. You were paying attention. I'm sure you were. And actually, no, I take it all back. I'm wrong. You're right. Your segue worked. I've just gone to the Wikipedia place page, which we all know is 100% correct all the time. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, okay, oops. <laughs> I'm just hunting through here and... The Royal Flying Doctor Service of Australia has apparently operated the Nomad. You win, I lose, I owe you a beer. There you go. She wins only one beer. Well, you know, I know how much you like beer. Not. (laughs) You know what you've just done for my inferiority complex there by uh, making me cringe and think I'd actually got something wrong. (laughs) Well, you know, sorry, dude. Let me just just, uh, boost my ego there. Did I mention that I met Leo Laporte last week? Oh, oh. You are the Segway King tonight. You are the Segway King. For the benefit of Courtney Miller and uh, anybody else <laughs> who, <laughs> who would uh, who would uh, like to know about um, my visit to the Twit Cottage. Oh, pick me, pick me. I want to know, I want to know. <laughs> well, of course, anybody that's into the uh, technology podcast world would know about the This Week in Tech Network. And um, whilst I was uh, coming back to Australia last week on a stopover in uh, San Francisco, I um, had enough time to get up there to Petaluma in Cal- uh, just north of uh, San Francisco and um, was uh, very, very fortunate to uh, be shown through uh, Leo Laporte's studio and meet the man himself and his manager, Dane Golden. And, uh, well, what a, what a privilege it was just to uh, watch the man work. Um, he, he's just as friendly off-camera as he is uh, on and uh, on camera and uh, very, very happy to take uh, a lot of my inane questions. And um, basically, uh, they let me stay there about four hours and uh, I was able to uh, watch Leo at work. He's just a pod... Oh, absolutely. Uh, it's it's kind of like worshipping at the feet of the master, really, isn't it? Um, <laughs> the man basically came in at about 1pm and sat there for four hours and pumped out four podcasts, just one bang straight after the other. And the interesting thing about it is if you ever watch if you ever watch Leo on his live stream at uh, twitlive.tv, you sort of see, you know, from the, the shoulders up video stream of what he's doing. Uh, and whilst the guy is always looking at the camera and uh, talking into the microphone, what you don't see out of shot of the camera is his hands, which are just, they never stop moving. They're flying backwards and forwards the guy sitting in front of uh, probably at least let's see he had a mac he had uh, two laptops he had the uh, mixer panel for his audio he had another panel there for his uh, video switching equipment microphones monitors you name it and and he is constantly tweaking different aspects of what he's doing making adjustments looking stuff up on the internet if he looks straight ahead from where he's sitting um, to the wall ahead of him there is uh, two widescreen TVs one of them's uh, hooked up to what appeared to be like a news feed perhaps from CNN or something like that um, the other one's got another screen with his uh, with the chat room that's going so um you know, when uh, if if you're in one of the chat rooms as he's doing on his, one of his shows, um, he's not even actually picking up your chat, looking off one of his computer screens. He can just see that looking straight ahead. Wow. Uh, he's surrounded by about five cameras. Um, the other thing you don't see is the the, um, the studio is surrounded by bookcases uh, full of books, which interestingly enough he uses for soundproofing the room. That's a good way to soundproof. And built into the bottom of one of these is a little hutch where uh, his little dog sits. So the dog is running around the whole time. <laughs> 
<laughs> oh man, that's nothing. But yeah, just fascinating to watch him work. Quite happy for me to sit there and uh, take pictures. Um, you can see some of those on my blog if you're interested. Watch. Have you bow down before him? We're not worthy. We're not worthy. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so uh, yeah, just just fascinating, and uh, gave me a few tips on uh, some microphones uh, to consider. Although uh, when I look at the price of some of the equipment, <laughs> perhaps I won't be considering yeah. it. But, uh, uh, well, let, let me get the tip jar up on the website, and let's see if we can get some money to get you a real microphone, right? Yeah, absolutely. But uh, yeah, it was just it was just an absolute privilege to be allowed to do it. Um, they they do tend to tend to keep things rather low key there. In fact, you wouldn't even know um, that the Twit Cottage was in fact the Twit Cottage just by walking past the front of it. Uh, that's no uh, big neon signs or anything. No, no, nothing like that. No, and um, they they prefer to keep it that way. So uh, I won't be handing out the address. But um, <laughs> yeah, they they took me through um, upstairs. He has an editing suite. They've got stuff up there that um, edit podcasts down. Uh, they have another room there where they're uh, building infrastructure, new computers, and, and whatever else. He's also got a green room. And you, know, you know what this reminds me of is um, is uh, Jerry Purnell, who used to write in the Byte magazine. Jerry Purnell being the famous science fiction author, and he had he called his house Chaos Manor, and similar kind of thing. All sorts of stuff going on in multiple different areas of his house. <laughs> Well, yeah, that's what I mean. It is. It is basically a house yeah. um, that's that's been converted for the purpose. But um, yeah, so if I can just say to Dane Golden, who's the manager of the uh, the whole setup there, and to Leo himself, and uh, also got to meet Dr. Kirsten Sanford. So for those of you who uh, perhaps listen to this week in science, yeah, uh, just a, just a great day. Fascinating to watch him work, and um, yeah, just a real privilege. So um, that's awesome. Yeah, uh, perhaps uh, the guys at the Airplane Geeks, if, if they become as famous as we do, maybe they'll get an invite to go there as well. Uh, who who would know? Out, out, out! I think I can hear some gnashing of teeth. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, uh, you know, this is gonna this is gonna ratchet up the uh, into podcast rivalry just a tad, isn't it? I mean, I'll tell you what, Leo's fee is substantially less than Rob Marx's fee. I'll tell you that much. Oh, cool! Because I've only got one kidney left, man. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. Oh. And yeah, the only reason the only reason that we couldn't bring enough money over for uh, Rob from Jetwine was uh, because there's only so much you can shove into one suitcase. That's right. Yeah, I mean, you know, there was excess baggage charges and all that sort of stuff. <laughs> Indeed, small, non-sequential, unmarked bills. Yeah. And with the current exchange rate of the South Pacific peso, a.k.a. the Australian dollar. Yeah, that's exactly, exactly it, the Pacific peso. Although not so much at the moment. I think we're getting about 83 cents in the dollar. Yeah, I'm about to uh, pick up a few things from the U.S., uh, drop some money on the uh, on a pilot story. So plug-timed guys, bring us back to aviation. Anyone out there who isn't aware of it, go to www.apilotsstory.com. All one word, no apostrophe, a pilotsstory.com. And that's Will and Rico over in the US working on uh, creating the next uh, equivalent 1-6 right movie. Looks to be really incredible. The, the trailers are great. Yeah, definitely go over and if you can, drop them a few bucks and let them help out. So now that the Aussie buck's climbing back up a bit, I'm actually going to, and I get paid this month, I'm going to pick up a few T-shirts and things like that. Okay, and uh, whilst we're on the uh, subject of my trip overseas, perhaps just a little housekeeping. Now, um, I did file a report for uh, last week's podcast, and any uh, astute listeners uh, to last week's uh, report that I put in would probably have picked up that I was uh, sounding slightly fatigued. (laughs) It perhaps wasn't fully on my game. I uh, did talk about going to Blytheville Air Force Base, and I think I mentioned that it was actually in the uh, northeast of the state, did I say? Um, so um, I don't know why I didn't think of this before. It's not called Blytheville Air Force Base. It is in Blytheville. It's actually Eker, or the former Eker Air Force Base, and it's in the northeast of the state. 
Okay. <laughs> Not in the northwest of the state. Uh, sorry, guys. Um, didn't cop any mail from that, but uh, yeah, just a little bit of uh, housekeeping there. Uh, in my defence, um, most of the time I was in the United States, apart from being extraordinarily jet lagged, I was also not well. And by the time I recorded last week's little piece, um, yeah, I was I was pretty pretty stonked. <laughs> and mate, do you want to talk about your experience with V Australia? Yeah, V Australia. I've got to tell you, for the most part, I was quite impressed with them. I um, uh, departed Melbourne on Virgin Blue, flew up to Brisbane. This is on the way out. Uh, hopped on uh, their uh, brand brand spanking new uh, Boeing triple seven three hundred AR. Very fortunately, I had a, a good seat. Had two seats to myself, which um, you know I'm, I'm quite a big bloke, and it was nice to be able to stretch out. The food was uh, was good. They um, and and there was a reasonable amount of it. Uh, we had the two main meals, plus they were serving. Uh, for instance, uh, in between meals, they came down and uh, served some chicken rolls. Yeah. Uh, Sorry, uh, I just reported previously in the Ausdesk segment about the uh, chicken wraps. Yeah, I did hear that, but so far I feel fine. Uh, <laughs> uh, Seventy days, dude. Seventy days. Seventy days. Okay. Um, yeah, uh, the entertainment system was uh, was excellent. Um, nothing short of what you'd expect on most major airlines these days. I certainly did appreciate the USB port that was built in there, which allowed me to keep my iPod charged uh, the whole trip across yeah quite a good range of uh, games on the entertainment system there to play on demand movies uh, TV shows the whole works so yeah quite impressed with that uh, the flight across was uh, very smooth I found the 777 for the first time that I've ever been on one um uh, a lot quieter aircraft perhaps that's because it's newer technology I'm not sure uh, and obviously uh, lacking two engines by comparison to uh, 747s that I've flown on in the past yeah but overall quite impressive now on the way back um, had a couple of little hiccups which um, which we got around to get up to Petaluma I'd organised a, a rental car and uh, I'd booked that actually through uh, V Australia's website and uh, got a fantastic deal price wise however when I turned up to uh, uh, to pick the car up I handed across the paperwork to the young lady behind the desk and she, uh, she took one look at it and said oh do you work for the airline now like an idiot I said no and uh, she proceeded to tell me that, that uh, well in that case I can't give you this rate because uh, it turns out that the rate that comes that had come through via their website was actually uh, Virgin Australia's uh, corporate rate for their staff oops um, so we, we went back and forth on that a little bit cut a long story short I ended up talking to her manager and um, got the rate that you know that I'd booked so uh, I was happy there and um, hopefully um, for the near future they, um, they won't sort that out and everybody can have a good deal on rental cars uh, on the way back one of the options they give you on Virgin Blue is if you'd uh, if you're in the economy class um, you can pay uh, a little bit extra to guarantee um, an exit row uh, when I went to uh, check in for the flight at uh, Los Angeles to come home I uh, said to the gentleman behind the desk you know that um, you know I was uh, I, I asked him how full the flight was uh, he said it was reasonably full however he said there are a few spare spaces and I said well look I'm after a bit of bit of room to stretch out I said and I'm, I'm prepared to pay the extra for the exit row now it turned out to be $110, which I thought was a little bit steep. However, it is uh, a long flight. It, it was sort of 13 and a half hours, and yeah, um, so, you know, that's it, that's like seven dollars an hour <laughs> yeah well okay yeah i never thought of it that way but you're right so anyway the uh, he assured me that there was no need to shell out the extra money that the seat that he could put me in um was three seats together he said to somebody on the outside he said but i can give you the window and he said there will be nobody sitting in uh, in the middle seat well um you know of course, of course you can imagine what happened um that that didn't sort of end up being 
the case. And uh, yeah, so I ended up being uh, cramped into a window seat with a couple of uh, young 20-somethings sitting next to me and uh, who, as soon as we got in the air, promptly fell asleep and um, stayed that way for at least eight hours. Here I am, cramped into this tiny seat, really unable to move with my bag between my knees. And uh, yeah, I was quite uncomfortable. And, and, and uh, i got to tell you, I wasn't particularly happy. Then again, I suppose I only have myself to blame. I should have insisted on uh, getting the exit row when I had the chance. So uh, I don't suppose I can really blame uh, Virgin for that. But uh, yeah, it was a pretty uncomfortable flight home. I, d- I did make an inquiry as to how much it might uh, cost to upgrade to premium economy, but um, didn't go any further when I was informed it would cost me somewhere in excess of about $680. Yeah, ow. <laughs> the uh, subject of increased competition on the Trans-Pacific route has um, been in the news a lot lately, and it's, it's obviously that's put downward pressure on um, airfares, and uh, that was pretty evident to see. The uh, I, don't, I don't think the load factor on the trip over was um, that high. Certainly on the way back, the aircraft, I don't, I don't think there would have been but uh, two or three spare seats on the aircraft. Oh, well, that's good for VOs. Uh, good for VOs. Uh, I did notice uh, when I got to Sydney that um, there was a couple of uh, Delta 777s. In fact, I saw one take off to head back across the Pacific, so obviously uh, that, that arrangement's um, up and running. So, yeah, and uh, interesting to note, too, that um, I did have a bit of time to walk through the Tom Bradley Terminal at uh, Los Angeles and um, some of the other terminals that Qantas operate out of and, uh, you know, the, the, the uh, large queues of people queuing to get on their aircraft to make the same trip uh, certainly uh, supports the idea that uh, competition is, uh, you know, great for business. Well, yeah, it's growing the pie rather than dividing it up amongst more people is what it might be doing by lowering airfares so more people can travel. Yeah, I guess I guess the question is going to be how long are these uh, cheap airfares sustainable? But, um, you know, uh, I tell you what, folks, if you're considering a trip across uh, across the pond of the US um, and you've got a little bit of cash spare, now's certainly the time to do it. I wouldn't be waiting until the economy picks up. Uh, certainly uh, looks like the price of oil is starting to go back up again. So um, that's uh, that's certainly going to put paid to a lot of the cheap fares uh, in the very Indeed. near future, I'm sure. Indeed, definitely. But uh, giving us a good segue into an article from Steve Creedy in The Australian about uh, the Delta V joint venture, aka Virgin and Delta. Uh, looks like another hurdle has been dropped on that. He's saying the chances of Delta Airlines and V Australia winning approval for their proposed Pacific joint venture have improved, with United Airlines stopping short of objecting to the proposal. So while Air New Zealand has been complaining, and Air New Zealand's complaint is is directed to the fact that the ACCC denied Air New Zealand permission to launch a similar kind of venture with Air Canada although what they don't point out in this is that it was between Australia and Canada and there's only a couple airlines flying that way as opposed to uh, in which case this linking up would have reduced competition significantly on the route whereas this one between Australia and the US there's as we note there's quite a few airlines flying it but uh, yeah unlike uh, Singapore back Tiger and Air New Zealand United have decided they're not going to complain about the uh, the prospect of Delta and V Australia linking up even tighter than they currently are. Let's face it, let's forget the sour grapes. This is all about business and, uh, you know, it's, there's no point in them looking back at what may have ha- may have happened in the past. The uh, business situation uh, these days is obviously different and um, you know, you've got, you're talking about different governments in power now, you know, with different political agendas. So they just have to deal with the here and now and um, there's, there's really nothing to be gained. If, if the government has made its decision to allow the Delta V arrangement 
arrangement to go ahead, then that's going to happen and they can jump up and down all they like. Where's it really, really going to get them? You know, from all the bad pressure here for, about United these days, I think they've got bigger things to worry about than whether or not they've got a bit of competition. Competi- <laughs> uh, you know, and it, it all comes back to that, that same factor, doesn't it? If, if they want more people, if they want more backsides on the seats in their aircraft, they've just got to provide a better service and that's just the way it is. Yep, that's pretty much what it comes down to. Actually, I was looking, Grant, um, it's not actually in our list here, but um, in the uh, July edition of the Australian Aviation Magazine, which I might just point out, folks, is one of the premier aviation magazines in the world, in my humble opinion. Uh, the not, July- the, not that you know the guys who write it. Oh, no. No, I don't, actually. <laughs> <laughs> There's actually an article in here uh, which, uh, which which talks about United Airlines, and it's actually entitled Fighting Back, is the way uh, they look at it. And um, without going into reading too much out of the article, it's written by Andrew McLaughlin in the uh, July edition. United seem uh, very sure of themselves. It's basically an interview with Alison Epps, Alison Espley, who's United's uh, general manager for Australia and New Zealand. Um, she's talking about refurbishment of their uh, 747-400 aircraft. Uh, so she's not worried about the fact that some of their aircraft are 20 years old now. Um, but they, they, they seem to be uh, upgrading their, particularly their uh, premium cabins. And um, they, they seem pretty confident that uh, they're going to maintain uh, what market share they've got here. And uh, they, they intend to keep operating. So... Um, you know, uh, let's hope they do that. Yeah, because uh, yeah, a friend of mine, uh, she flew down from San Francisco on United. Uh, she's got a lot of frequent flyer points with United, uh, traveling around, been traveling around the world a fair bit. So she flew enough to get a free first class trip down, and she came down at Christmas, so about eight months ago. And she said, oh, look, you know, it wasn't really that brilliant, the whole experience compared to other airlines, but hey, you know, it was still pretty good. I think the last time I flew them was in 1991 on a trip over to the United States, and... Um yeah, well, they were okay. I mean, for the time, I thought they were pretty good. The trip prior to that that I'd flown to the States was on Qantas at the time in 1990. And at that time, I wasn't impressed with Qantas at all uh, at that time. Now, I flew with Qantas to the States back in 2007. And, uh, well, a lot had changed. Uh, you know, <laughs> uh, yeah. c- certainly, they're a much, uh, much different and a much better airline than they used to be, Qantas. And, uh, you know, uh, from all the things we hear around the podcast world, the aviation podcast world about United, it seems like United's gone the other way. Uh, yeah, well, our, our friends at the Geeks really like to bag out on United. Yeah, maybe I'll send them a copy of this article and they can, uh, you know, they can, uh, they, they, might, they might find it interesting. Mind you, of course, it's a big PR spin, this article, uh, you know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you're obviously not going to get uh, a managing director or a manager from uh, from the airline saying that their airline's no good, I guess. So. Well, that would t- sort of be a, c- a career-limiting move. And speaking, Grant, of things that we speculated previously might be coming from PR departments of aircraft uh, or, or, or of airlines, our good friends at Tiger Airways uh, have been quoted here in an article recently uh, saying that uh, they are abandoning the ultra-low-cost Ryanair-style model of uh, service and are actually going to offer some service. Yeah, that would be a wonderful thing. It's it is good to see them actually listening to their customers and taking steps to improve their act. I think they've realised pretty quickly that the Ryanair model is not going to fly down here, and uh, so they're they're uh, they're actually taking steps to distance themselves from the yeah yeah there's a problem screw you guys you're paying the lowest amount what do you expect aspect that is Ryanair. And uh, it's trying to step themselves more towards like a Virgin Blue model where they actually take steps to do things to help even while being cheap. Well, sorry, inexpensive. But uh, <laughs> another in that same article, it was quite interesting to have uh, the mention that actually that Jetstar is trying to get closer to the Ryanair model. Yeah, well, gee whiz. Um 
<laughs> but what are they thinking over there at Jetstar? I mean, Tiger Airways, you know, we, we've long banged on on this podcast and on our Australia Dish reports about how bad they are. Yeah. Um, and, and hopefully, um, you know, they've, they've taken heed of all the bad press that they've gotten, you know, not only from us, but you know, <laughs> from, from the general public. To think that Jetstar's management would be, uh, you know, loony enough to, to think that they should go down the, the sort of Ryanair path, that just uh, defies imagination, really. I mean, Jetstar's quite a popular carrier here in, in, in this country and... Um, why they would want to do anything to jeopardise that is just beyond me. Yeah, uh, look, at in, when I'm working tarmac at Avalon and in various other parts, when I'm mucking around with the aviation industry, we refer to Jetstar as Pornstar. Uh, when they first, <laughs> when, when they, yeah, Pornstar. When they first showed up, everyone was talking about Death Star, uh, but these days it's Pornstar, and uh, you, know, you know, you've got the virgins, you've got the pornos, but. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's 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 interesting to have them compare themselves to Ryanair. It just scares the heck out of me. Yeah, interesting, uh, interesting. Um, now, the other carrier I flew in in the states was Southwest Airlines. Now, obviously, a budget carrier there. The sort of service they offer there is 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 the sort of service I think one should expect from your typical budget airline. You're not going that. You're obviously not paying the full price. You know, you're not going in there to get a full service uh, flight. But yeah. you know, no frills. You come down the aisle. Here's a complimentary drink. Here's a packet of unedible peanuts. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, maybe it's, you know, you're going to be crammed in there. It's it's no fuss, but, it, you know, the staff were friendly and, um, you know, the aircraft are reasonably clean and that's about all you can expect. You know, they're, they're, they're short sectors and that's fine. You know, what, what you don't want when you're getting on one of these budget carriers, despite the fact that you're not paying full fare, you don't want to be treated like, uh, you know, just cattle and, and herded into a spot and uh, yep. be treated poorly. Just because you're not paying a premium price doesn't mean uh, that that gives an, air, an airline or, or any other service provider, for that matter, some sort of license to treat you poorly. Indeed, indeed. And we're not the only ones to complain about this. The guys at Flightorg, who are Flightorg on Twitter, uh, that's uh, Ken, Marty and Adam. They've commented a few times about the uh, Tiger Airways experience and uh, we've uh, sent some tw- tweets back and forth with the guys about this. And uh, yeah, it's a lot of people are in agreement with you, Steve, that uh, just because you're paying a low price doesn't mean that you should be skimping on service. You, know, you, you get you get other there's other ways to uh, cut costs and cutting service should not be the first way to give you that discount. Yep, absolutely. And Grant, just before we move off the subject of V Australia, um, an article here on uh, Flight Global, uh, which was um, we picked up in the Twitter feed from our friends at Flight.org, who you just mentioned, uh, talking about V Australia, and they've put in an application to operate uh, from Australia over to Fiji. That's interesting. Uh, which is interesting. Now, um, Fiji doesn't have a it's not overly serviced um, up until uh, a couple of years ago in fact there was only one airline that being air pacific that flew there uh, these days also virgin blues uh, offshoot airline pacific blue also flies across there now v australia uh, wants to operate their boeing triple seven aircraft now uh, it says here that uh, v australia has applied for uh, 1267 seats per week on the fiji route and plans to operate uh, daily triple seven services interesting uh, and that comes from the australia's uh, international air service Commission. This is really interesting because Fiji's just recently gone through a political upheaval and a coup and things like that, and it's it's still a great tourist destination. A lot of Australians are going to and from Fiji, but Australia and other members of the Commonwealth are in the process of kicking Fiji out of the Commonwealth and the Pacific uh, Nations area because they don't have a democratically elected government. Yeah, I remember uh, now I was over there in 2001. Uh, my family, my, myself and my family uh, went over there for a holiday, and uh, I think that was right in the middle of one of the coups. <laughs> yep, yep. 
Uh, they have so many over there, it's a little bit hard to keep track of. But uh, at that time when we flew, you could only fly Air Pacific. Uh, the flight they had running out of Melbourne, I think, left at midnight. <laughs> oh, wow. Well, do you, do you remember the old Air Pacific colour scheme with the bands of colour around the tail? Yeah. They used to be known as the Flying Fruit Tingle. Because <laughs> yeah. they looked like a pack of fruit tingles. Yeah. <laughs> uh, obviously not a very big airline, uh, Air Pacific. I remember we flew over there on a uh, Boeing 767 and we flew back on the exact same Boeing 767 uh, with the exact same flight crew and we're offered the exact same meals going to and coming from. <laughs> with basically, it's uh, a chicken or a fish. <laughs> yeah. Did you try the taro chips? Oh, no, I think I just stuck to uh, Coca-Cola. <laughs> <laughs> Now, what would be interesting here is, now, if uh, V Australia were operating over there, what would become of Pacific Blue? Um, would that would their operations be merged into V Australia, or would they still... Uh, to me, it wouldn't make much sense for Virgin to be operating two of their airlines across uh, across there to Pacific, uh, to Fiji. Unless Pacific Blue are taking the off-peak, or, like, they're operating 7.3s, so they could they could be taking this, the like, they do a daily 777, and alternate with other day or maybe they have uh, an addition a second daily run with pacific blue to take some, uh when there's less people traveling maybe well if i look at the brand names i don't know v australia sounds a bit better than pacific blue so they you know yeah well maybe pacific blue is going to focus on um fiji to new zealand instead of fiji fiji to australia so v oz I, I i honestly i don't know what's going to happen there and you're right it does seem a little odd that they're maybe cannibalizing on each other so I'd imagine there will be a, a bit of a rethink. Unfortunately, I missed the chance to uh, to ask Phil about that because I didn't know it was coming up. A gentleman I met up in Sydney at the conference when we were doing the panel, uh, he was with me on the panel. He's a marketing person from uh, from Pacific Blue. Okay. Uh, we might just touch on that in a minute. Uh, you can uh, give us all a report on the, on that perhaps, Grant. But um, the other comment I wanted to make on uh, that was um, what, what I find interesting is that uh, Jetstar doesn't operate across there to uh, Fiji. Uh, to me, that seems like a... When they're when they're they're very focused on operating into um, holiday markets up there in Asia, and now they're operating in New Zealand. Just looking at this article, it makes me wonder um, why they don't operate to Fiji. But uh, yeah, that's a very good point. It's a pretty significant tourist market uh, from Australia, Pacific, particularly from the east coast. Uh, But anyway, I digress. That's something that we'll certainly keep an eye on. It'd be interesting to see if V Australia um, does get that up. And um, once again, although it's not nearly as expensive to fly across to Fiji as it is to fly uh, right across the Pacific, uh, once again uh competition is good okay so uh grant yeah speaking of um your, your trip up to sydney last week and the uh the aviation forum that you attended what news do you bring us okay well uh yeah i in sydney last week they had the asia pacific aviation outlook summit for 2009 and uh, there were a lot of movers and shakers in the aviation industry uh within the asia pacific area and also uh some people coming in from uh for instance there was uh, some folks from turkish airlines and uh some folks from the uh, from the Middle East area and uh, there was J- Jeff Dixon the ex-CEO of Qantas uh, Alan Joyce the current CEO uh, people from Air New Zealand uh, some folks from Dunedin Airport there was quite a few people in there there was also our friend uh, Shashank Nigam from Simply Flying uh, came in from Singapore for it he was uh, presenting during the conference I didn't actually go to the conference itself I the conference was spread over about three days I went up to Sydney on the Wednesday and uh, had a chance to interview uh, Carla Courtney who runs the Qantas Travel Insider website we'll be putting that into the feed shortly when I get around to editing it and letting her listen to it and authorize it but the big part was that Shashank and I decided it was a really good idea to throw a tweet up 
Shashank suggested doing a bit of a tweet up and combining a forces. So it was going to be simplifying and PCDU getting together and bringing people in for a few beers and some nibblies. And uh, Shashank managed to organize uh, NII Tech to um, help sponsor it with a few hundred dollars worth of uh, food and drink to help kick things going. And uh, what, in addition to getting a whole bunch of people involved in aviation together to discuss and meet each other, we also put together a panel to discuss uh, social media and aviation and airlines and so on. And on the panel was Carla Courtney, the previously mentioned Carla from uh, from the Travel Insider, and uh, Phil, who I'm sorry, Phil, I still can't remember your last name, and I should have checked with Shashank to get it correctly. Phil works in marketing with Pacific Blue, and it was myself. And we had a great time uh, talking to the audience and uh, fielding questions from them and having discussions with the audience. They chipped right in. Uh, it wasn't a huge crowd, but it was a, a tight little group, and we had a really good time talking about uh, the impacts of Twitter and Facebook and uh, social media and open business ideas and things like that and where to go and even even IT and how it fits into a business and so on. It was a, it was a really good discussion and a lot of fun. I really enjoyed myself and got to meet some cool people and uh, then jumped on a plane and flew myself back late on Wednesday night. Uh, the uh, the um, the links that uh, we go to on this podcast to provide good content, Grant. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I, I sacrificed a few Qantas frequent flyer points and jumped on the plane and flew up around uh, ten, mid-morning and flew back on the last flight out of Sydney. Okay. Um, that's interesting that you were uh, talking about your Qantas frequent flyer points, Grant. Would that mean that you've been shopping at uh, Woolies liquor stores lately? <laughs> no, actually. Bang! No. How's that for a segue? <laughs> Excellent segue, but no, I haven't actually been shopping at Woolies to shop with the other guys uh, with Coles. But yeah, look, that's a really interesting one. Um, Qantas have totally hooked themselves up with Woolies, and they're uh, they're now growing their uh, frequent flyer numbers immensely because as part of the link over with Woolworths, uh, Woolworths being a national uh, supermarket chain, they waive the joining fee. So people are just signing up hand over foot. They can, sorry, they earn points just through their average weekly shop. There's also the, uh, they also get the joy of uh, earning points when they go to affiliates of Woolworths, which includes a few liquor barns and alcohol selling places so yes you can go and buy your booze and earn some frequent flyer points especially if you buy it on a uh, Woolies credit card yeah interesting um, well of course that's good for me since I live across the road from Woolies and um, I think my wife quite often buys petrol from me yep. uh, from their service station uh, just down the road so um, yeah maybe we should uh, look at getting into that scheme and uh, maybe the next time I go across across the <laughs> pond I'll, I'll do it in first class on a Qantas 747 that's a lot of alcohol dude <laughs> 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 well, that's where you come in. Anyway. <laughs> no, I'm glad to help. <laughs> it's an interesting scheme, the way they've, they've sort of brought that in. I mean, um, there's often a lot of talk here with the uh, the co-branded fuel outlets here. You know, the, the debate is, yes, they're giving you a cheap fuel voucher, but, uh, you know, obviously that's you're not getting something for nothing. That's that's obviously being paid for in the, the price of your groceries. I, I wonder what, what impact that's had on, on grocery prices um, to, to fund this scheme. Yeah, well, they well, Woolies had their own uh, frequent loyalty brand thing. Like Coles has, uh, Coles, the rival supermarket store Coles have their uh, flybys loyalty plan, and uh, so they're basically just linked up the Woolies loyalty plan with the Qantas loyalty plan to uh, try and target more people. And in fact, Qantas's frequent flyer, thanks to this, they added 500,000 people in the first few months of operation, which is quite a number for Australia where we've only got 18 million people anyhow. And uh, the, apparently the size of the uh, Qantas frequent flyer 
program is now equal to or slightly exceeding the size of the Air Canada frequent flyer program that they sold off for a few billion Canadian dollars. So once again, waiving the possible specter of uh, Qantas selling off or separating out their frequent flyer plan to operate as a separate subsidiary company, even though Alan Joyce is saying that's not on the radar at the moment. Yeah, because the last I'd heard, uh, Qantas were uh, doing everything they could to kill off that frequent flyer program. They're obviously not a, a fan of offering people something for nothing. Well, they've, they've, I think they've changed their, um, they've had to change their tune because they've seen how successful the velocity points is for Virgin and how Virgin are saying, you can get on any flight you want if you've got the points and we've got the seats. Yeah, um, and uh, they, they they certainly push that. I mean, um, I've, I've walked away from my flights to the US with a uh, this time around with a uh, Virgin uh, Brickman Fly card. Not that I do that sort of flying maybe more than once every year, but uh, yeah, it'd be interesting to see how many points I've racked up actually from uh, that trip across and back. I'd say you've worked up quite a few. We've we've had our uh, velocity cards for a while. We typically fly Virgin a lot. I used to fly Qantas a lot in the past. These days it's Virgin, and uh, yeah, we haven't found a reason to use them yet. Uh, I don't think we've racked up that much, but uh, we're mostly flying a few flights a year domestically, so we're not we're not doing a lot of flying on Virgin. Yeah. yeah. Now uh, moving on to another article here, um, looking at AirAsia X, the uh, the Asian based budget airline that's uh, recently started operating down here into Australia um, have recently uh, been snared by uh, Melbourne Airport's uh, chief executive uh, Chris Woodruff and um, uh, he's uh, trying to get as much traffic, uh, much of their traffic down to Melbourne and away from Sydney as he can by the looks of things here. Oh wow. Uh, nothing like a bit of uh, good old fashioned Melbourne-Sydney rivalry. Uh, of course we all know that Melbourne's a far superior city, isn't that right Grant? Oh totally. Back me up here buddy. Totally dude, totally. <laughs> I lived in Sydney, I've lived in Melbourne, I'd prefer to live here. Yeah. Same about the weather. Anyway yeah, so Air Asia X, now I've not flown on them, uh, I don't know whether they're a, an Asian version of Ryanair uh, <laughs> operating down here, um, but uh, yeah they're, uh, Air Asia X is increasing its services from Kuala Lumpur to Melbourne by four flights a week and boosting their services now that makes 11 a week that are coming in uh, that's from the start of December at least and expects to boost that to double wow that's that's pretty daily, uh, ne- next year yeah so um, yeah it'd be good to see some uh, different tail colours uh, flying down here into Melbourne um, yeah interesting that they're trying to get them away from Sydney I mean let's face it Sydney would be the big, the bigger market it's a typically the entry point for the majority of tourists especially some time ago it was the entry point and everywhere else was kind of second fiddle but now melbourne's definitely stepping up and brisbane as well there's uh, way more international tourists coming into those areas than ever before talking about uh, coming down here coming down here from uh, malaysia to melbourne uh, the airline's saying here that is that it estimates that it's already captured a third of the market between wow well Lumpur and melbourne and uh, plans to boost this with cheap fares aimed at uh, the leisure market predominantly and um, relatives and friends student traffic that sort of thing that's that's impressive and uh, i gotta say good on melbourne airport they've got tiger based out of here and uh we've got uh, now air asia x coming here more often uh we're getting to be a busy little airport down here yeah very good for plane spotting mate and um oh, and, yeah. uh, in a separate article here uh, actually back from july 31 in the australian uh, says here that air asia x is uh boosting its services up to the gold coast there in queensland and like um yeah so uh, yeah obviously and uh, the gold coast pretty huge market up there on the for um asian tourists it always has been so uh it would only make sense that any airline that's coming from anywhere in asia uh coming down here to australia is going to want to be heading up to queensland um, you know the beautiful gold coast there well it's a busy little airport at uh, gold coast i uh, my mother-in-law has a house that uh, it does unfortunately it doesn't look over the tarmac but it is in the 
right area to watch all the aircraft either arriving or departing within a few seconds of leaving the tarmac. And yeah, you watch the AirAsia X, uh, Jetstar, Virgin. It's a pretty colourful set of tails going in and out there. Yeah, it's certainly not the uh, largest uh, airport by any stretch of the imagination up there at Cool and Gatter. Um, one would wonder just how much traffic they can really handle. Uh, you know, it's good to see AirAsia Air X operating in there. They've also got Virgin and Jetstar that operate in there as well. Um, I think Tiger as well. Uh, yeah, t- Tiger, of course. So uh, when they can manage to get an aircraft up there that hasn't gone unserviceable. Wow. <laughs> So, uh, yeah, one wonders, um, you know, it's, it's, whilst it's great to get as many tourists as they can coming through that airport, um, you know, they'd probably have to look at making the place a bit bigger. If well, they... they have been doing a fair bit of work on that. Uh, it, when I was last up there, there was a lot of work going on with rebuilding the uh, terminal and making it better and expanding it somewhat. The, the one thing that gets I always find interesting is the uh, on approach, if you're heading towards the south, landing towards the south at uh, Coolangatta, you get a bit of burble off the hills around the northern end, and uh, it's not uncommon to... Uh, have a bit of uh, an interesting landing there. Yeah, it's uh, it's 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 uh, quite a quite a scenic place to fly into, that's for sure. Another interesting uh, side article to this that we picked up also around the same time, talking about uh, traffic coming down from Malaysia. Of course, uh, Malaysia's uh, flag carrier, which is um, MAS, Malaysia Airlines System, uh, says here in an article from Jeff Easdown in the Herald Sun recently that uh, Malaysian Airlines is fighting a life and death battle that says it's losing losing 1.3 million US dollars a day for the last three months. Wow. And uh, the big thing, the big thing to note there is that um, they're losing ticket sales to aggressive local discounters such as AirAsia, AirAsia X, and of course Jetstar is also operating up into that region now yep. as well. Star Asia. Jetstar Asia and of course Tiger Airways, um, they operate their local operations up there too. And uh, now we of course we know they're a budget airline as well. So um it's saying here that Malaysia Airlines aircraft are flying an average of just 66% full. Uh, wow. Um, those are some pretty empty planes now. Uh, well, there you go. That's the, that's the airline to fly with if you want some legroom. Yeah. yeah. Uh, if only we could get them to operate across the Pacific, mate, we'd be right. <laughs> it says the only thing that saved them here is that uh, they uh, had a, a gains uh, from some fuel hedging recently, which saved them $371 million US. Ooh, lucky. Uh, which uh, kind of offset their $120.3 million loss. <laughs> oh, jeez. It all comes down to cash flow. It's like if, if you're if you're relying on your hedging to make you profitable or things like that. It's yeah, you can be profitable on paper, but if you're hemorrhaging money, like uh, some airlines in the US, we can name <coughs> United. Um, you know, <laughs> you, you, you've got problems. And yeah, it's it's all very well to to be able to go. Okay, we made a loss, but with, due to our hedges, we saved some money. But if you're if you're not generating sufficient cash, you're in trouble. Here's an interesting here's an interesting comparison. Um, it says last week AirAsia X was selling Christmas holiday flights from Melbourne to Kuala Lumpur for as little as ninety nine dollars. Wow. It says here an equivalent Malaysia Airlines fare, including taxes, costs seven hundred and ten. Um, that's a hell of a lot more cash to fork out just to get some legroom. Um, I mean, yeah. that's the that's um, you know it's what's becoming the age old quandary for uh, for full service airlines. How do they really survive, particularly in in, in these these um, tough economic times against the budget carriers? They've got to be able to offer their services, and it all comes also comes down to uh, how many people have they got per aircraft, and the the number of people either directly employed by them or indirectly used through contractors to maintain and run their airline and their aircraft. And it's quite fascinating to look at number of employees versus number of aircraft. Um, Air India just has enormous numbers of employees per aircraft, uh, whereas others have got very little. But 
unfortunately a lot of the figures that are reported don't include the subcontractors so those airlines that have subcontracted out a lot of their services on the ground uh, look a lot leaner than others yeah so anyway it looks like here um, you know uh, the uh, Malaysia Airlines executives are keeping a trying to put a positive spin on things uh, they're, they're still saying here that um, things are looking positive and yay team rah rah and, yep. and uh, they'll survive it so um, you know good luck to Malaysia Airlines it would be a shame to see them uh, you know go down go down the Google I've got a completely different sidetracked totally changed gear kind of story here for us let's go for it you know how uh, we've had a few instances of laser pointers being shined at aircraft and blinding pilots and so on both here and in other parts of the world uh-huh. well we've finally had some success according to an article in the ABC News they've actually bagged a couple of people who were shining lasers at aircraft on approach yeah and let's uh, hope they lock them, lock them up and throw away the key what a well, pack of it idiots was, it was an overseas student appeared in court accused of shining a laser pointer at a Qantas aircraft as it neared Adelaide. They were uh, parked in an area near the airport and were shining at aircraft and also passing cars. What a pack of bozos. Not only is that monumentally dangerous, you know, in, in, in terms of the aircraft, th- this makes it... <laughs> what will end up happening if people keep doing stuff like this is you'll see um, a lot of the uh, really great aircraft observation areas are that, that sort of sit on the outsides of airports being closed down. And not only are they endangering the safety of aircraft that are... Uh, coming in to land at these aircraft but they're, they're going to spoil a lot of fun for the rest of us as well in the, in the meantime Indeed. whether they uh, harm the aircraft or not it's interesting here that the gentleman's lawyer said his client thought the laser was a toy and did not think he had done any harm yeah those uh, they, they have a lot of reach now um you know uh, i've had those things shined at me when i'm driving trains now you know you know if i'm i'm operating a, a 300 ton train at 100 kilometers an hour and uh, some bozo you know shines one of those things particularly at night time uh, yeah you know if, they, if you know, they can centre that right in the centre of your eye. That's uh, it's not only it can be quite painful. Uh, it can be extremely distracting and uh, monumentally dangerous. And uh, you know, I know you know kids, kids in particular, may not have such a grasp on the ramifications of uh, doing stuff like this. I think in the, in in the case of the guy they caught here, the guy's 26 years old. <laughs> yeah, you think you'd know better. Yeah. So uh, whiskey tango foxtrot there. I uh, certainly hope they throw the book at him. <laughs> And that's about everything we have here for you on this episode of Playing Crazy Down Under this week. Aww. <laughs> I'm tired, mate. I'm still jet-lagged. I have to go to bed and uh, try and work out exactly what uh, time zone I'm in. Yeah, true that. I've got to be up early tomorrow. It looks like it's going to be a great day to go fly some balloons, so i got to go and be ready to crew them. Yeah, well, I've got to go and fly some trains soon. So, <laughs> <laughs> Just a couple of things before we finish up here. Potapalooza at uh, AirVenture 09. Um, oh, my God. Um, had a few comments. Uh, we, um, for those of you who don't know, we, um, at the suggestion of uh, Steve Tupper or Stephen Force from Airspeed Online, uh, he suggested that we perhaps make some sort of uh, little grab or commercial uh, to promote our podcast. So uh, we did just that, and uh, and a cheeky little number it was too. And a cheeky little number it was. Uh, so to uh, Steve Tupper, mate, that got played uh, a few times there at Oshkosh, I believe. And um, well, we really want to thank you for that. Um, that's huge support. Uh, also to our good friends at Airplane Geeks, um, even though they pick on us, and of course they do sound a bit funny with that strange American accent, but uh, uh, you know we let them pick on us. That's all right. Yeah, and, yeah, uh, it'll be their turn to pay cash soon. And uh, I, hear, I hear Rob from Jetwine is uh, interested in coming on our show. Maybe it's time for the suitcase to come back. Yeah, I, I don't know. Um, he, he said in the uh, for those of you who haven't heard uh, in episode sixty of Airplane Geeks, um, he wants to know where the cash was. He said uh, I should leave it nearby. Well, um, I left it in the United States. Isn't that close enough? Well, did, did you use FedEx? No, I used uh, Stevex. Oh no! Oops. 
There you go. And also, I'm a little bit behind on uh, listening to uh, the Uncontrolled Airspace podcast, UCAP, but I uh, listened to episode 145, and uh, Jack Hodgson gave us a bit of a plug there too. So uh, thanks very much, Jack, and uh, thank you to everybody else who's uh, listening. We uh, certainly hope that you're enjoying what we're doing. Yep, uh, it's, great ha- it's great to have all the feedback from everyone on Twitter and in the emails, and to actually know there's more than just us listening to it is wonderful, uh, and definitely really appreciate all the support and help we're getting from uh, the sh- podcasters in the US. Uh, they're all madly trying to get us involved in over for Oshkosh 2010 uh, dangling uh, beers in front of us I mean that's that's going to work oh yes definitely <laughs> it's going to work yeah uh, and on a personal note Grant big thanks to you mate for uh, keeping the podcast going while I was over there enjoying myself in the United States <laughs> oh it was great fun uh, oh, that was a mighty effort mate um, you know, you know, I didn't uh, didn't know how we were going to keep it going uh, but uh, you certainly stepped up and uh, heading up there to Sydney that was a mighty effort mate so uh, good on you for that thanks man it was I couldn't have done it without my energy drinks that's for sure <laughs> i tell you mate you got to get addicted to coffee like the rest of us oh yuck i hate the taste i don't like hot drinks <laughs> uh sound effects and music that we use on the podcast uh, come courtesy of soundsnap.com you can uh, follow us on twitter at pcdu you can uh, check out my blog which is uh, ozflyer.com uh, and i'm also uh, steve Fisher on twitter all one word and we are now also on facebook so you can uh, check out our fan page on Facebook and uh, follow us there as well. Wow. You can find me on Twitter as Falcon124 and I'm also on blog.flymefriendly.com. So until next week's episode, I'm Steve Vischer. And I'm Grant McCarran. And remember, folks, it's what's down under that counts. We'll catch you again on the next episode of Plain Crazy Down Under. Catch you around, folks. asked us to make this statement. The views and opinions we present in this podcast are ours and do not necessarily represent those of groups we work with or are associated with, although we think they probably should. We certainly don't claim to be experts, we're just opinionated enthusiasts who are willing to comment publicly on the world around us. This show is intended as entertainment and any education that may occur is purely coincidental. As with anything in life, it is your responsibility to determine what does or does not work in your situation and to seek out suitable guidance and or instruction. This podcast is released under Creative Commons non-commercial by attribution license. For more details on this license and our contact details, please visit our website at www.playingcrazydownunder.com. Thanks, folks. 